you have a copy of God's Word available to you there, please join me in the first epistle of Peter, in the first chapter. First Peter 1, we'll be reading verses 10 through 12. First Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were, not, they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. This is the word of our Savior God. Let's pray. And now, Father, as we have just a few moments ago confessed our sins and rejoiced to know the forgiveness of Christ, we pray now as your children that you speak to us through this, your word, according to your promise. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. T.S. Eliot, the poet, and I will not deceive you, I have at times attempted to read Eliot because I've been told it would be good for me. And I have yet to find that. That's more an inadequacy on my part, I'm sure, than the poet. But he did have some interesting lines from a poem entitled, The Hollow Men. We are the hollow men, we are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpieces filled with straw, Alas, our dried voices, when we've whispered together, are quiet and meaningless as wind and dry grass. Now there, my friend, is that not a lovely thought here at Christmas season? Hollow men, headpieces filled with straw, Dried voices rasping, quiet, and meaningless. One brother said it's kind of like he's saying we're like scarecrows without life or hope or connection to the source of blessing. You see, these Christians to whom Peter is writing, they're in Pontius, Galatia, Bithynia, and Asia, are apparently struggling and feeling dry and empty. They had been hollow men, now they're holy saints, but they're still struggling. And if you've been a Christian any length of time at all, you've discovered that becoming Christian doesn't mean that all at once all that stuff goes away, that you no longer struggle, that you no longer wrestle, in fact, in our sufferings and trials, we tend to get discouraged because we lose sight of the big picture, the grandeur 
of the saving message given us. The immediacy of our problems, whether it's health failing, finances pinched, relationships that are difficult, we get discouraged. And Peter's writing to these believers trying to encourage them. I think he's shouting at us that our encouragement and suffering has to be seen, must be seen in this glorious plan of salvation. And in these verses, 10, 11, and 12, he basically tells us that we ought to take encouragement from the prophets and encouragement from the preachers and encouragement from the angels. These are the three groups he cites as he talks about this encouragement. First, encouragement from the prophets. Verses 10 and 11 in particular. Concerning this salvation, which salvation? The one he mentioned in the prior verse. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And before that, he has spoken of it as connected to Christ, that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded or ourselves kept by God's power for this salvation. These prophets spoke. They preached. They proclaimed. And there's like three different Hebrew words that are used to describe a prophet. And and whether it's Navi or Chose or Roah, whether it means prophet or seer, all indicate somebody who has seen or heard a message. And the prophets, when they spoke then, always spoke in a very formulaic way. They would say, thus saith the Lord. Now that's the King James rendering of the language. But in each case, what they were saying is, this is not what I'm saying, this is what God says. The prophets, as they prophesied, they spoke. They prophesied about the grace that was coming. Peter points out to these Gentile believers that they haven't become practitioners of some new religion founded on the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Rather, they're privileged with the knowledge of the gospel that fulfills God's plan revealed in the prophets in the Old Testament and that brings them into continuity with what God has already been doing through His people Israel. The continuity of this thing. Now, Gentiles didn't have as much Old Testament knowledge as Jewish believers would have had, and so they have to get an education about how all this stuff works together. Sometimes I feel that way in the American church uh, it's like folks know just enough Old Testament to be dangerous, but actually not very helpful. Um, Peter will preach the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he had set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, 
that he was not abandoned to Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. Acts chapter 3, another sermon opportunity. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him proclaimed these days. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets picture the restoration of all that's been lost the land, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood. Now we know, may debate how that comes to fulfillment, but there's no doubt that that is the prophetic element. Eden will be restored and more. God will make a new creation where peace will be universal and darkness will be gone. And yet in that, the Old Testament also describes something that they struggled with, the sufferings of Messiah. Peter will say here, they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and subsequent glories. We know that part of the reason the struggle in the first century over Jesus being Messiah was that for many of them, the idea of talking about a Messiah who was crucified made no sense at all. The Messiah was the king. He was triumphant. How could his suffering on a cross be part of the package, part of him being Messiah? Some of the teachers of the day actually indicated there might be two Messiahs, one who came and suffered and another one who came as the king to lead into glory. They could not find it in themselves truly to reconcile together the suffering and the glory. This is done under the inspiration of the Spirit now. Sufferings first, glory follows. Now, have a little sympathy for the folks of that day because that was a tough one. I'm so thankful that in the gift that we have in the Scripture in the 24th chapter of Luke, we're told the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember Jesus appears to them, only he doesn't let them know that it's Jesus. And he asks them the question that they're just, you know, perplexed. So what's been going on? That's my paraphrase, but that's the essence of the question. What's been happening around here? What do you mean what's been happening around here? You live under a rock? We were following this guy, Jesus, a man attested by God as a mighty prophet, and he healed, and he did all these things, and we thought he was the one, but He's, he's been executed. They crucified him. He's dead. And yet today, <clears throat> some women that we know went to the tomb and said they saw angels and he's not there anymore. And we, we just don't know what to do with all of this. We're overwhelmed. And of course, those of us who have lived through a multitude of Easter's, we're sitting here saying, oh, guys, come on. We know Jesus isn't there anymore. You ought to get that. Remember what the text says? Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Do you hear that? Suffer glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. My friend, the prophets 
the prophets are doing this. And notice what he says about them. They are doing this. They were not serving themselves, but you. Now, how do we get that? Now, now realize, the prophets don't end with with Ezekiel's vision of dry bones. This isn't a bad outcome. It's not that the suffering is it, and that's the end. Everything in the prophetic work of the Old Testament looks forward, I believe, to two elements, and they didn't know how to put them together, and they're not together chronologically, but they are together as far as the nature of the kingdom. First, suffering, the cross, resurrection from the dead, ultimately the reconciliation of all things, but that is yet to come. Their problem, and it would be one that was easy to see if you read the Old Testament, they collapse those things together. In the plan of God, those things are separated. Separated chronologically, not separated in the plan and purpose of Almighty God. And you see, that comes then to us, my friend, through the encouragement of preachers. We're not only encouraged by the prophets of the Old Testament, we're also encouraged from preachers. They served the gospel, the prophets did. Now, this is a bit of a transition here. These things go together. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. Now, you can almost imagine Peter's early readers. Now, remember, none of them were probably going to see the letter themselves to read it. It's a single copy. It doesn't come like a box of books and everybody, okay, here's your copy. They they didn't have photocopier. There wasn't any way to pass it out. So the letter comes, the leadership gets it, and somebody in the leadership stands before the group and reads it. And one can almost imagine having heard those words as they are suffering, as they are struggling. And remember, these places where they are are off the beaten path. These are not major metropolitan areas. These are not where important people live. This is the backwoods, if you will, of the empire. They felt forgotten. I can almost imagine one of them out there, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Stop. That last sentence, would you read that again? And the reader, being a cooperative fellow like myself, would say, certainly. It was revealed to them that they were, not, were serving not themselves, but you. Wow. Would that not be a cure for self-pity? Does that not enervate and strengthen here? They, they served us? Those glorious prophets of the Old Testament? Moses? Samuel? Elijah and Elisha? Isaiah? They served, but they didn't yet see. And my friend, here's how this comes to us. Take encouragement from the fact the prophets did this for your sake. The Lord was looking out for you before you were born, not only in the eternity of selecting you, but also in time 
as the work of salvation is going along, those prophets weren't just prophets for Israel, they were prophets for you Gentiles too. They're serving you. Jesus will say, I truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, didn't see it. And to hear what you hear, did not hear it. Or Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on earth. Or the end of that 11th chapter of Hebrews, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God has provided something better for us, did you get that? Since God has provided something better for us, hmm, that apart from us, they shouldn't be made perfect. You know, sometimes you hear people, you know, we read the prophet, we're doing, the, doing Elijah and Elisha on Wednesday nights. And those, those glorious stories are so good for our souls. And it's so encouraging to see what God did through them. And I think there are times we're going, oh man, <clears throat> I'd like to live to have seen that. Wish I had been at Carmel. Hey, I hope fire come down from heaven. Not sure about watching the bloodbath of all those false prophets and priests, but you know, I'd like to see the good stuff. I'd like to see those exciting things, right? <clears throat> and then the scripture comes along and says, the Lord's given you something better. The prophets look forward. The preachers of your own era, your own time, empowered, and I love this, empowered by the Spirit, you notice in the things that have now been announced to you through those who did what? Preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, I often hear people say, well, how did we get from all that big prophetic stuff in the Old Testament down to showing up on a Sunday, gathered in a room with one guy up here talking from this book? How did all that happen? Is that just some westernized version? Did we mess it all up? And I'm declaring to you, not at all. This becomes the focal point. We are declaring the good news of the gospel to everyone and every week. You and I as believers need to hear again the realities of this eternal plan and purpose of God. We need it recited to us. We need it rehearsed. We need it explained and applied. Why? Because we're not very good at this. We live in a fallen world. And we do battle with sin that is still within us. And we get discouraged. Now, my friend, don't get discouraged about being discouraged. Boy, you're, you're, on a, you're really on a spiral there, right? Oh, I'm discouraged. No, I'll not be discouraged. So now I'm discouraged about being discouraged. And then eventually, yeah. My friends, if this stuff weren't possible, you understand half the New Testament didn't need to be written. It's there for us. And the Lord brings this to us. And it's empowered by the Spirit of God. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 2, we thank God constantly for this. That when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, that is what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. See friend, this is more than the act of one fellow preparing a speech for you to hear. 
This is the act of taking the Word of God and seeking to explain it and apply it to help you see it more clearly so that by the power of the Spirit of God, not the ability of the preacher, by the power of the Spirit of God, it impacts your life. Now, my friend, you know what happened when you were saved, right? At some point, it went from being just somebody's word to it was God's word, right? And it came to you not merely in word, but in power and conviction as the Spirit of God works. It teaches. I'll own this. I I wasn't smart enough or creative enough for this one, but I Who'd have thought I found something Spurgeon said that was actually on point here, right? Listen to this. It teaches us that the prophets of old who spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit testified concerning the same salvation which has been reported to us by the apostles as actually accomplished. There's been no new salvation. This has been a change and uh, there's been a change in the messengers, but they've all spoken of one thing. And though their tidings have been more clearly understood in these latter days, the substance of the good news is still the same. The Old Testament and the New are one, inspired by the same Spirit and filled with the same subject, namely, the one promised Messiah. The prophets foretold what the apostles reported. Now hear this, this this is so good. The, the seers, the prophets, looked forward. And the evangelists looked backward. Their eyes meet at one place. They see eye to eye. And both behold the cross. People, well, I don't like living now. I want, I want to live back then. Why are you grousing about the time God placed you? My goodness, you think awfully highly of yourself. Well, if I were God, thank God you are not. Why do I have to look back? My friend, do you understand? The prophets could have said the same thing. Well, why do we have to look forward? Why do we have to wait? It ain't fair. Somebody else is going to get to see the Messiah. I don't get to see the Messiah. I just have to trust God's Word. Huh. That vision, that picture that Spurgeon gives us here, their eyes meet. What a glorious way to look at this. Now, you see, that's the encouragement of the prophets and the encouragement of the preachers. Let me give you now the final part, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper together. That's encouraging too. The encouragement of the angels. Now, I love this because Peter almost makes this a passing comment. It's, it's just barely a phrase. Things into which angels long to look, and that's, that's the title. What is it that makes an angel curious? When I read that, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. What makes an angel curious? I figure angels know more than I do. I think it's a fair assumption. 
I know some, well, I know more than you, so yeah, okay. Why is it that angels long to look into this? And the picture here is, is the, it's, it's like, almost like peering over something and looking. Now, first of all, I think that for part of Peter's readers and some others, there's an image that ought to come to their mind. And we won't take time to dig into all of this, but when you look in the book of Exodus at the instructions on the building of the tabernacle and the making or the crafting of the Ark of the Covenant, you read in Exodus at one point, they're told that the lid of the Ark, what's called the mercy seat, they were to take gold and hammer out two angels. And those angels were to be at the ends of the lid and their wings were to be extended toward one another and they were facing one another. I know some of you said, well, I've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, so I already know that. Well, just keep in mind, Raiders did that based on the text of Scripture. Not much else was based on the text of Scripture in that, but... And the idea here, the angels face in at the point of God's mercy. It's called the mercy seat. Right? They're facing the throne of God, the place where mercy comes. And they've got their wings up, and they're peering into this. That's part of it. But here's the other part. They are amazed enough to be enthralled by it when they look at our salvation, this good news. Now, folks, I, do, you, do you ponder this? I mean, I think about angels and the angelic relationship to humans. This is always an intriguing thing, and especially this time of year as we, we come up on Christmas season, right? Angels start showing up. Angels hadn't been seen in Israel. Nobody knows. I mean, there's nothing said about angels. And all at once, after 400 years of silence, suddenly God's talking. Angels are showing up. Gabriel's making a, a, you know, a, a, a place where he appears. He shows up, talks to Mary. He shows up, talks to Joseph. He's everywhere, right? Jesus is born, and it's not just one angel. It's a whole angelic group out there with those scruffy shepherds in the middle of nowhere. Glory to God in the highest. Angels attend him in his temptation in the wilderness. Angels minister to him on earth. We're told in one of the Gospels that an angel came and strengthened him as he was in the garden facing death. And then what I so dearly love, angels, empty tomb. Disciples, the women show up. What is going on? Where is he? And the angels are just incredulous. Of course he's not here. He is risen. Just like he said. Duh. And it's not even done there. Angels... Simon and Peter have to be awakened in prison. You remember that? Church prays for him to get out. Peter figures he's dying. He's going to go and get a good night's sleep. No need to lose some sleep over dying because he knows where he's going. 
It says in the text the angel had to poke him, punch him in the side. Hey, wake up, buddy. Why, why am I driving at this? My friends, we lose sight of something glorious here. Listen to the brother Robert Layton. This is 200 years ago, give or take. It's no wonder that angels admire these things and delight to look upon them, but it's strange that we do not. They view them steadfastly and we neglect them. Either we consider them not at all or give them but a transient look, half an eye. They having no will nor desire but the glory of God being pure flames of fire burning only in love to Him are no less delighted than amazed with the, I love this phrasing, bottomless wonders of His wisdom and goodness shining in the work of redemption. It is our shame that we cannot lose ourselves in this, that our our poor childish things, we get lost in those and trifle away our days and let rich mysteries go unconsidered. Rich mysteries unconsidered. Our culture at one time romanticized angels. Some of you may remember a particular television series touched by an angel. My friends, you don't need to be touched by an angel. You need to be redeemed by the Savior, regenerated by the Spirit, and adopted by the Father. And what you need today is to be encouraged. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with you today. But my assumption is you've had some stuff that's been hard. Okay? Prophets have served you and knew that they were doing it. Preachers have encouraged you and brought the word of the gospel to you. And the stuff that you're hearing today is stuff that angels look into and just are absolutely astonished as they see it. They see it. Now, my friend, if you don't know Jesus, this is doing you no good at all, except I hope it makes you hunger for him. If, if suddenly there's a hunger there and a thirst you never had before, and it, it, you can't quite put your finger on it, let me explain it to you. You're a sinner who desperately needs a Savior, and He is now presented to you. He who has died for sinners, raised from the dead, gloriously exalted to the right hand of the throne of God, I, as His ambassador, call on you now, quickly make peace with Him. Run to Him. How do I do it? Admit, confess you're a sinner. Trust in His saving work in Him. This is salvation. My friend, if you don't know him, that's all it takes. Well, I, I, I need to straighten up my life. That's kind of like saying, okay, I've been run over by a truck, and before I go to the ER, I've got to get better. As soon as I set my own bones and suture everything that's bleeding, then I'll go to the ER so they can help me. That's stupidity. 
You're not going to reform your life and then the Lord take you. You're going to go messed up, broken, busted, dead in your trespasses and sins. And those are the people he saves. That's what this gospel does. And oh Christian, if you're here, hear me. Rejoice in this now. One of the dangers I think of the Christmas season is we sentimentalize what's happening. And this is not a place for sentimentality. This is about a glorious reality. The Word made flesh. May we give thanks for that today. Our Father, may this your word do for us and in us what we so desperately need. I pray, Lord, if someone is not a Christian today, that even now they are calling on the name of the Lord and are being saved. And we rejoice to trust that you will do that work. For believers, Father, may we in these moments together rejoice in this picture now of salvation. For it is in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Now I'm going to ask the deacons who are going to be serving if they'd come join me up here in front. And as they're doing so, let me explain a couple of things. Now if you're not a member of this church, you do not have to be a member here to take the Lord's Supper with us. This is what we say. You must be a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you must show truly in your life that you're His. And I don't mean by that you're perfect. <laughs> we all know better than that. Right? But you've trusted a perfect Savior. And you've borne witness to that in Christian baptism outwardly. See, baptism is the picture coming in. The Lord's Supper is the picture of being part of the people of God all the time. Birth and eating. <laughs> kind of defines us, doesn't it? You're invited to this table. Now, my friend, if you're not a Christian, I cannot emphasize this enough. Do not take this. It is not for you. To take it before becoming a Christian is to testify to a lie. And the Lord doesn't take that lightly. You eat and drink judgment to yourself. But oh, my friend, if you're his, examine yourself, yes. When you find sin and you will, call out for his mercy and trust that he has paid for that. Now we'll do this as the deacons will go along and pass these to you, the plates. First, the bread. We ask that you take it. Everybody take the piece. Hold it. Till everybody's served, and then I'll lead us. We'll take it together in unison. Then after that, we'll do the same thing with the cups. We'll pass it. We ask you to take it and hold it till everybody's served, and then we'll take it together. The cups are disposable. You can get rid of them as you leave. Now, if you're not comfortable, if you're a Christian, you're a baptized believer, you're not comfortable reaching into the trays, we have sealed cups out there on the counter. And as this is being passed out, feel free to slip out there and get that if you'd like. You're wondering how much longer we're going to be? It's going to take about 10 minutes to do this, okay? I'm going to give us one more opportunity for prayer before the brothers will pass out the bread, okay? Let's go before our God. Lord, you have 
been good to us in ways we don't fully understand. We look at it and we wonder and we're astonished. Father, may we never lose that wonder. When we feel like hollow men, when we feel like our words and our thoughts are nothing but dried out weeds and have nothing of use, may we recognize that we have been set apart as your people and that through the prophets and through preachers and even through angels, you encourage us that this great salvation is indeed at work in us. For we have a living Savior, Christ the Lord, at your right hand. Thank you that we can celebrate this through the Lord's Supper today. As we pray in Christ's name, amen.
These words are ancient and also familiar. And yet they're the words that most stand out as I think back to that final Passover. Having taken the bread and blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said to them, Take and eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we eat this bed of bread, Father, we're reminded that our Savior is the bread of life. As you poured out manna on the people of Israel for them to live, you sent your Son to give life to us. That he who was God in the flesh carried our sins and our guilt to the cross, paid the penalty for us, and through that unites us to himself and to one another. And for that glorious salvation, we give thanks. Amen.